2 Timothy chapter 4, as I just prayed about what do I share with you all, please don't, please don't grade me uh, from a, uh, a preaching perspective here. Um, I, I, I'm going to draw all my applications, and I just want to preach a word of, of encouragement uh, to my pastor, to our pastor, Bishop Ulmer. Um, but if you listen carefully, um, as I encourage him, you'll find your encouragement through this text. Paul says these words, pick me up in verse 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, would you bless me as I bless my pastor? We give you praise and honor and glory for coming up on 41 years of faithful service. And we declare that what lies ahead will be even greater than what was. God, would you be so kind as to strengthen and encourage your people as they eavesdrop in on this conversation? Would you be so kind as to save souls and to draw sinners back to right relationship with you? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. His name is Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose is a well-known historian who has written many books. And one of the books that he wrote is a book entitled Nothing Like It in the World, The Building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Historians say that the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, this railroad that canvasses our country from east to west and west to east, is the greatest engineering feat of the 19th century. It's because of that railroad that America was, was thrust as the head of the economic empire of the global world. So as you can imagine, as they began to build this transcontinental railroad, there was a lot of fanfare. In fact, they, they wanted to begin it with a sense of pomp and circumstance. They wanted to do what was called the driving of the first spike. This is what we would kind of today call uh, the ribbon-cutting ceremony. You know how we do when we build a new building. We're excited, and so we want to we have a ribbon-cutting ceremony. That's what they did or wanted to do with the driving of the first spike. There was just one problem. The owner of this project, a guy by the name of Collis Huntington, if you've ever been to the Huntington Library in Pasadena, he wasn't excited about a bunch of fanfare over starting a project. So he fired off a telegram. Look at what Collis Huntington says with me on the screen. He says, if you want to jubilate over driving the first spike, go ahead and do it. I don't. Those mountains over there look too ugly. We may fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know about it as we can. Hear it. Anybody can drive the first spike, but there are many months of labor and unrest between the first and last 
spike. In other words, what he's saying is starting well is easy. Finishing well. That's the challenge. Oh, let's call it what it is. I was the best husband on the honeymoon. But honeymoon love doesn't impress me anymore. It's when you can still look at that same, that same person across the table after you've dropped that last kid off at school and still have a glimmer in your eye. That's more impressive. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is the challenge. They, they once did a study on who in the Bible finished well and who didn't. What they discovered is, is that if you read from cover to cover your Bible and every single time you saw a person's name mentioned in the scriptures, you, you jotted it down, you would discover there are over 3,000 people mentioned in the Bible. If you wanted to know who finished well and who didn't, there would only be enough sufficient information on about 100 of those 3,000 plus that would allow you to determine who finished well and who didn't. Of those 100, only 30 finished well. Absent from the list, Moses. God told Moses to speak to the rock, but out of frustration, he struck the rock and he was banned from the promised land. He didn't finish. Starting well is easy. Finishing well, that's the challenge. Absent from the list is Solomon. Started off well as the third king of the people of God, and then all of a sudden, Immorality ate away at the character infrastructure of his life. Starting well is easy. Finishing well, that's the challenge. Samson started off well, but he didn't finish well. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is the challenge. And Bishop, we come here today to celebrate you. Because 41 years you came here and 41 years later, still pastor, Never been ashamed to call you my pastor. You're finishing well. Now, I know some of you may wonder, Brian, I think you're making too big of a deal out of this. I don't think so, because my Bible does not record God saying of you and I when we die and stand before his face. My Bible doesn't record God saying of us, well, start. doesn't record God saying of us, boy, you got out of those starting blocks well. No, but the Bible records God saying of you and I, well done. I don't know about you, but that blesses me. The fact that God says not well start, but well done tells me that what matters most to God is not how well or poor we start. It's not how well or poor we are in the present. It's how we finish. And the very fact that we are alive today that God, as the words my grandmama used to say, woke me up this morning and started me on my way, has kept me from dangers seen and unseen. It is God's way of saying, I know you may have had some bad starts and shaky middles, but the fact that you're still breathing is a sign of my grace and mercy. Shake the dust off your shoulders. Throw your shoulders back and keep on running until you hear me say, well done. I want you to finish well. Now we come to the book of 2 Timothy, and here is Paul 
2 Timothy is Paul's last documented letter that he ever writes. And I'm blown away, Pastor JP, of all the people he could have written. He writes to his young son in the ministry. He writes to his JP. The one he turned over the pastorate of the church at Ephesus to. He writes his young son in the ministry. And here is Paul. He is, he's in jail. Moments away from death. We know he's cold. Because he tells Timothy, when you come to visit me, bring my coat. He's lonely. He talks about people that he started out in ministry with who abandoned him, who when he looks around at the marathon of the Christian life, folks he used to run together with to Bible study and talk about Jesus with are no longer running with him. Any testimonies in the house? So now he, he takes the pen and he dips it in the ink and he writes across the papyrus and he's giving Timothy last words of encouragement and the whole book of 2 Timothy can be summed up in one word, finish. In fact, in verse 5, one verse before our text, will you look at it with me? Paul tells Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Here it is, fulfill your ministry. He's writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for fulfill means finish. It's as if he's grabbing Timothy, this newly appointed pastor at the church of Ephesus, and he's begging Timothy, don't be a five-year wonder. Be a 50-year warrior. Finish. So here's Paul. I want to tell you this, Bishop. Our passage is not about ending. It is about finishing. There is a difference between ending and finishing. Uh, let me help you all with that. Our family likes to play games. Sometimes when we play board games, sometimes when I played board games with other people, you, you take out the game and there's an hourglass. When it's you or your team's turn, you turn over the hourglass as you're trying to answer the question. And you're in a hurry and you're frantic. And sometimes the hourglass runs out before you've given the correct answer, which means you've ended, but you have not finished. Uh, let me help somebody else out. All of us have taken tests that have been timed tests and there's a time limit on this thing and we're frantically trying to answer the questions to this time test and I don't know about you but there have been times in my life when the time has run out and there's more blanks that I have not filled in I've ended but I have not finished 
My wife and I, right now, we are in the process of redoing our will. Brian, why are you redoing your will? I've got three boys, I've got a wife, and I view my role as provider as providing beyond the grave. And I'll tell you a sad sight I've done as a pastor who's done funerals. It's to look at men who are in caskets, who had no will, who didn't leave any kind of resources, They ended, but they did not finish. So when my wife walks by the casket, I want to finish. And parenthetically, she already has instructions that life insurance policy ain't for the next dude. I will come up out this bad boy. You will see a resurrection in real time. I've got a 21-year-old, a 20-year-old, 18-year-old, all boys, pray for me. <laughs> Parenting young adults is something else. Can, can, I, can I get one more amen? amen? Here's what I'm learning, parenting young, young adults. I'm learning just because their season under my roof has ended doesn't mean my work as a parent has finished. So, Bishop, we come here today not celebrating your ending. A lot of pastors have ended. They've been forced out. Pastor, we come here celebrating your finishing. So Paul writes, Paul writes, and notice what he says. Right out the gate, he says, the time for my departure has come. The time for my departure, the time for my departure has come. He's writing in Greek. Uh, one Greek word for time is chronos, from which we get the English word chronology. That's TikTok. That's, that's uh, not the app. <laughs> that's seconds. That's minutes. That's hours. That's days. That's weeks. That's not the word Paul uses. He doesn't use the word chronos. He uses the word kairos. When he says the time for my departure has come, he uses the word kairos. K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos simply means season. Paul is saying, my season is done. Bishop, it takes a whole lot of humility for a leader to push away from the table, not be voted out, not be forced out, but for a leader. It takes a lot of humility and strength to say, My season here is up. I know of way too many churches where the pastor stayed way beyond their season. And they ran the church into the ground. Bishop, we bless you for your humility, for the discernment, for the wisdom to be able to say, my season is up. How do I know I'm a finisher? Let's go home on this. And not just an ender. Paul says, here's four things. 
He says, for I am already, verse 6, being poured out as a drink offering. The, the, the visual is stunning. If you, if you ever went and saw the movie Cooley High, you know, they'd, they'd pour a little out for the brothers who ain't here. The, the, the idea here, it's really a, it's really a temple idiom where, where, where what they would do when they would go to offer their sacrifice, if you offered a grain sacrifice, what you would also do is you take a cup and there'd be a, a liquid substance in there. And, and as that grain sacrifice was being consumed, you would also pour out this, what they called this drink offering as the grain offering was going up. And, and these two things would be your sacrifice to God so that watch it now, Paul, when he says, I'm being poured out as as a drink offering, it is synonymous with this idea of sacrifice. How do I know I'm not just an ender, but I'm a finisher? It's when you can look over the time, your season, your moment there, and can say, it wasn't all about me, but I, I sacrificed. I, I, I gave everything that I could give. Some of y'all, that's your word. How, how do I know this relationship is over? I'm grieving. I'm trying to make this thing work. I'm trying to make this thing work. You've, you've given it your all. Well, a basic principle in relationships is there can't just be one person sacrificing all the time. So I love baseball. Sorry, Dodgers fans. I'm a Braves fan. It's a shame what we did to y'all last the, the other year. But I'm a baseball fan. Sometimes, sometimes the batter is given a sign, and it's a, it's a sign that says to bunt. Well, well, to bunt the ball means that, that I take the bat and I angle it in such a way so that when the ball hits the bat, it dribbles along the ground, and it's a guaranteed out. So why would the coach tell the hitter to bunt? Because there's someone else on base. And it's their way of saying, I, I don't want you to just think about yourself, but I need you to move your teammate into scoring position. I, I need you to have an other's orientation. Bishop, we bless you for 41 years of bunting. We thank you for not just thinking of yourself. We thank you for thinking of us. I, I remember living with you, Bishop, and, and literally being in your study on a Saturday night while everybody else is doing their thing. Here you are, giving up time with your family, preparing the word of God. You, you bunted. I remember one time being at a conference in Atlanta, and there you are. You had flown all night to get to this conference. You were scheduled to speak all week. You spoke, and then you got a call that one of your members had died, and you got back on a plane, flew back to L.A. to be with that family, bunting. Bishop, we honor you today. You're a finisher, and we know you're a finisher because you sacrifice. You gave up so that we could be better positioned. Secondly, not only do finishers sacrifice, finishers fight. Look at verse 7. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Now, I love what Tony Evans says about pastoral ministry. Tony Evans says pastoral ministry is not a playground, it's a battleground. Pastoral ministry means that sometimes you get in what John Lewis calls good trouble. Sometimes in pastoral ministry, you have fights. In fact, the Greek word for fight is agonizomai, 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 from which we get the English word agonize or agony. 
Paul said, I want you to understand, Timothy, being a pastor means that you will get into some agonizing situations. Sheep bite. And if every time you get a negative email, if every time you get an ornery deacon, if every time you get folk who don't vote the way you think they should vote, you crawl up in the fetal position and your wife has to rub your back, you're not cut out for pastoral ministry. In this life, there will be trouble. There's no kind of hurt like pastoral hurt. People that you can just pour into, give your best to, give up time to be with, and then they just kind of up and leave and send you an email. Ministry's agonism, my bishop. Paul spoke of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, will you look at this? He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, as if that's not enough, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul said, this ain't a paycheck for me. I'm not fleecing the people. I'm laying my life down. Sometimes I get beat up. Oh, y'all might see some of the latest model cars that our pastor well deserves to drive, but you weren't here when he was driving the church van. My wife will tell you, about a year and a half ago, I, I went through the hardest season of my life. I mean, the stuff that was coming at me was just nasty. And I remember sitting in my little study trying to have my time with the Lord, worry, anxiety, my ministry's hanging in the balance, what's going on. And I just, I just sensed the Spirit of God saying, are you going to fight? So I was reflecting and I took this 2 Corinthians 11 passage and I just started to reflect on some of my own hardships and maybe this is heresy, I hope it isn't. I just rewrote 2 Corinthians 11 to fit my own experience. Are they servants of Christ, I wrote. I'm a better one, look at it with me. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors. My wife and I, Corey, we've experienced a miscarriage. We've gone through seasons where our kids didn't make the best choices. In my work with the multi-ethnic church, I've been misunderstood constantly by blacks being called a traitor and an Uncle Tom. I've been misunderstood by whites who walked out on me mid-sermon every time I preached on race. I've been attacked in the media, betrayed by elders. I've had cancer scares. I've watched a once thriving church I poured my heart into dwindle to a shell of itself. I've had an engine go out on me on an airplane I was in while on my way to preach the gospel. I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. 
I felt overwhelming loneliness in my labors. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. If I might, must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Bishop, I was sitting there and I thought about the fights you had that you told me about. The Sunday the deacons here locked you in your office. The fights you had, Bishop, where you stood up for racial equality and some of our white evangelical friends turned their backs on you. Fights that came because you changed stuff. And I, I want to thank you, Bishop, for not quitting. I want to thank you, Bishop, for being a fighter. Which leads me to the third point, finishers endure. He says, verse 7, I fought the good fight. Here it is. I've finished the race. Race, Paul would use this word in Acts chapter 20 when he's saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus, which Timothy pastors. He tells the elders as he's getting on a boat to leave them. He's finished his season there. And what does he tell them? I've finished my course. The idea of the word course, the idea of the word race, same Greek word, it simply means assignment. It's the idea of Jesus when he was on the cross. He did not say it has ended. He said it's, it's finished. It's really the picture of a person who runs in a marathon. And all my, all my friends who've trained for a marathon, not one of them ever said to me, I'm training to win. They've all said, I'm training to finish. I've got a friend of mine, and I, I, I asked this friend of mine, well, just tell me about the runner's wall. I hear that phrase, the runner's wall. I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, the runner's wall, said, it's about mile 18 in the marathon. I so can't relate. But it's about mile 18 in the marathon, she said to me. When your body turns around and looks at you and goes, are you kidding me? Stop. And then she says, but those who finish the race are those who push through the pain. Bishop, thank you for pushing through. Thank you for your endurance. Thank you that you haven't given up. Finally, Paul says, I have kept the faith. I love it. That word kept, it means to stand guard. It means to watch. It was a... It was the same word that was used of prison wardens and jailers in that day where, where if a prisoner escaped, it would cost them their life. So jailers, they, they were vigilant. They, they kept a close watch. I, I'm, not, I'm not letting anything go. That's the Paul, word Paul uses for the faith. What does the faith mean? It, two ideas. One, the idea of the faith is the good news of Jesus Christ. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My favorite word in that verse isn't uh, God or demonstrated or love. It is the word while. The good news of the gospel is God did not wait for me to clean up my act before he saved me. In fact, he knew I couldn't clean my act up. The good news of the gospel is God sees us as is, loves us as is, accepts us as is, saves us as is, yet by his grace never leaves us as is. Paul says when it comes to the gospel, I kept it. 
I kept watch over it. I'm not letting that go. Now, now, now let me just pause and come to your neighborhood. There's a, there's a little word popping around in the black community. It's the word deconstruction. A lot of black used-to-be Christians are deconstructing because of microaggressions, and they don't like the fact that a white Christian touched their hair, or I don't like who you voted for in 2016. I just want to give you a word of caution. So let me get this straight. You're going to let go of Big Mama's faith. Let me just remind you, our grandparents marched in Birmingham. Our grandparents marched in Selma. They were bitten by German shepherds. They had thunderous streams of water from fire hoses turned on them. And they were back at church the next Sunday. So let me just get it straight. Someone says something to you you don't like and you are out. Let me remind us, those of us chocolate folk in the room, we sailed over here on the middle passage. We met Jesus. We, 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 we held on to him in slavery. We held tighter during Jim Crow. We are a resilient people. Don't let nobody cause you to ease the grip on the faith that has kept you and sustained you, we will keep the faith. I'm in my seat. But some also say that phrase, I've kept the faith, isn't just about the gospel, it's about integrity. I grew up in Atlanta. I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan. I think we're playing in the playoffs today, I think. <laughs> Which means I'm well acquainted with suffering. That's okay. The Bible says suffering produces character. I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and, um, man, we were horrible back then. Horrible now, horrible back then. So I had to look elsewhere for heroes. I grew up in Atlanta. And, and my guy in the 70s and 80s was a guy, you, you may have heard of him, it was a guy named Walter Payton. That was my guy. Um, you don't understand, I love Walter Payton so much, I did the unthinkable, I ate Wheaties. Wheaties is the nastiest cereal ever created. If I get to heaven and Wheaties is on the menu, I'm walking out. I'm walking out. It's the worst thing. But I ate Wheaties because Walter was on the cover of the Wheaties box. You just saw my dad. My, my dad's a phenomenal preacher. And what would happen all the time is sports teams would come to Atlanta. The chaplain would call my dad. My dad would speak at chapel. And so when the Bears came to town, I was about nine years old. Uh, the chaplain called my dad and said, we'd love for you to speak at chapel. Uh, my dad says, do you want to come? It's early Sunday morning. He says, yes, sir. So I, I go, and I'm so excited. I see my guy, Walter. Uh, my dad gets done uh, preaching. And then the chaplain goes, hey, we got time. Do you, do you want to eat breakfast with us? I'm like, oh, my gosh, won't he do it? So, y'all, I'm nine years old, and I'm sitting with my dad at the same breakfast table as Walter Payton, but I'm, 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 I'm confused. I'm so confused because my guy ain't eating Wheaties. He's eating Raisin Bran. 
So as respectfully as I could, as respectfully as I could, I, I got to get answers. I said, Mr. Payton, Mr. Payton, I, I eat Wheaties because you eat Wheaties, but I, Mr. Payton, will, will you forgive me for asking this? Why aren't you eating Wheaties? You're eating raisin bread. I'll never forget what, what he did. He got a scowl on his face. He says, oh, kid, I don't eat that stuff. That stuff is horrible. You know, years later, it dawned on me that all Wheaties was to my hero was a paycheck. All Wheaties was was an opportunity to extend his brand. You know, I never ate Wheaties again <laughs> because my hero wasn't even buying what he was selling. Bishop, we honor you for eating your Wheaties. We, we honor you. We honor you for your integrity. We bless you that we don't have to hang our heads when we say what church we go to. No, you're not perfect, but you're a man of integrity. Finally, Paul says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Yeah, there's an air of sadness here, but it's also an undercurrent of confident joy. Paul is saying to Timothy in so many words, I may not see you again, but, but don't you worry about me. I'm good because I got a crown waiting on me. I'm going to hear God say of me, well done. Yeah, I might look bad in the eyes of the world, but, but as long as God and I are good. My youngest son is with me. I'll close with this. Um, I was telling my wife, it feels like I'm just getting this parenting thing figured out right as my youngest is going to leave. Uh, he thinks he's God's gift to basketball. He's actually a good player. And I remember the first game I ever went to to see him. I'll never forget it. He's six years old, playing at the Collierville Rec Center, a suburb of Memphis where I was pastoring at the time. And I sat up way in the corner of the, the bleachers there. I'll still remember it. The game, tip-off happens. My boy's starting. And not long into the game, he, he makes a shot. And he stops. All the other nine players are going back down. But he stops after he makes the shot, and he looks up at me. He finds me in the bleachers, and he goes. <laughs> and I go. L little while later, I'll never forget, he, he steals the ball. And yet when he steals the ball, he just holds on to it. <laughs> and he finds me up in the bleachers, and he goes. And I go, and then after the game, you know, all the players are gathered together and the coach is handing out Gatorades and giving some congratulations, but my boy breaks the huddle sooner than what he should have and he makes a beeline for me. And he asks me a question. Hey, Dad, sweat coming down his face. Hey, Dad, did I do good? And he would ask me that question after games for years, and 
I notice he never asked his coach that. He never asked his teammates that. He never asked the parents of the teammates. He never asked the fans. He only asked me, hey, Dad, did I do good? It was as if my, my son was, was saying, no one else matters. What my teammates think don't matter. What the fans think doesn't matter. The only thing that matters. If dad says I did good, that's enough. Bishop, I want you to know you can rest easy. God sent me here to tell you, you did good, Bishop. 41 years. You did good, Bishop. Rest easy. There's a crown of righteousness. God bless you.